Well, having many opportunities to travel overseas and to be in a lot of foreign countries over the years, I've always been amazed by how much of the world actually celebrates Santa Claus, all right? Uh, But no matter where you are, no matter what culture you find yourself in, what country you find yourself in, Santa Claus is always worshipped with a little bit of a twist. And here's the deal. Santa Claus doesn't always look in other countries like Santa Claus looks here, all right? I've seen some whacked up Santas, all right, across the world, all right? Uh, And here's the deal. Clothes-wise, facial skin-wise, playing the race card, all right? Uh, Food-wise, Santa doesn't look, doesn't dress, doesn't eat the things that he does here, all right? So, of course, uh, all across the world, East Asia, uh, throughout much of the world, Santa is is celebrated and vaunted. But here's the thing that always fascinates me is that Santa always looks like the people that's celebrating him, all right? So Santa always dresses just like the culture that's celebrating him. Skin color-wise, he always looks just like the culture that's celebrating him. And there are some countries, check this, where he doesn't eat milk and cookies. What a travesty, all right? <laughs> Let's just throw Christmas away, right? No, no, all right, here's the deal. Santa always looks just like the culture that celebrates him. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what culture you find yourself in. It's just biblical. It's not biblical, sorry. It's just universal, all right? <laughs> not biblical at all, right? You're like, I think I'm out of here. I don't know what this church is, all right? So Santa looks just like the people that celebrate him, all right? And I want to submit to you guys this way this morning that I think much can be said the same about God and about Jesus himself. I think as we think of Jesus and as we think of God, I think ultimately what we find more often than not in different countries and different cultures is that it's not by coincidence that he looks just like us at times, right? Uh, You find a Jesus who's painted and pictured in America, he looks very different than a Jesus who's painted and pictured in East Asia. Not just ethnic-wise, not just culture-wise, but even fashion-wise, Jesus often is pictured just like the culture that is worshiping him and adoring him. In fact, I think for us, it's no stranger, we're no strangers to the idea that God is like us. We know that Jesus Christ was incarnate, that he took on human flesh to identify with us and to be like us. What you may not know, though, is that there are Jesus action figures, all right, that you can buy that will have a Jesus who's into any hobby you have, all right? I don't care what your hobby is. I don't care what you most like. You can find a Jesus that is all about you, all right? I'm going to give you guys a few examples this morning, all right? Jesus action figures, all right? Maybe your thing is that you like the rural country, right? Maybe you like to ride bulls. I got a Jesus for you, all right? Maybe you're a little bit like me that is stoked about the fact that the Dallas Cowboys report to training camp in just about a week and football season is almost upon us and the dark, dead vacuum of summer sports is almost over, all right? I got a Jesus for you, all right? Maybe for you, you're kind of more into Harley Davidson's and tattoos, all right? I don't think Jesus was tattooed, but apparently Jesus likes to ride Harleys, all right? Jesus action figures all over the place. Just a few more real quick. Maybe your thing is football, all right? Football, the real football for some of you guys who are pride and elitist, all right? Or maybe you guys uh, like to wear camo and you like to hunt, all right? I think it's a little bit ironic that Jesus the hunter is holding a dove. I don't know what he does when it flies away. I don't know, right? Um, Or maybe your deal is you like to surf. You're kind of a California dude. You kind of feel like you're a little bit of a fish out of water here in Texas. I got a Jesus for you, all right? I got a Jesus for whatever hobby or interest you're in, all right? I've seen Jesuses that are uh, action figures with business suits on. It's like the Jesus in the corporate world, all right? I've seen Jesus with backpacks. I've seen Jesus with little kids playing ice hockey, all kinds of stuff, all right? There's a Jesus that can be pictured and portrayed for whatever you're into and whatever really suits you. We live in a church age that has really pushed forward the idea that you can relate to Jesus, that you can approach and have a relationship with Jesus, and that is all good, what I want to do this morning is come and come back and balance out and out and say that Jesus is also profoundly different than us, right? That as we've been walking through this series this summer and the attributes of God, there are attributes of God that are communicable, we'd say, or they are similar to the nature and the character of man, right? 
but just amped up way better and way more perfect than what we can resemble in terms of wisdom or in compassion or grace, right? But there are also attributes of God that, that highlight that he is profoundly different than us, right? Now, you guys are familiar with the omni-attributes, the holy trifecta of omni-attributes, right? Omnipresence, omniscient, omnipotent, right? Uh, we've talked a little bit about those already this summer. Uh, whatever those are, we kind of attest to them. We kind of agree with them. As to their full implications, we kind of wrestle, but we go, man, God's just amazing, right? What I want to do this morning is we're going to come and zero in on an attribute of the character of God that I'm going to submit to you guys that if I asked you from the outset, you'd say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But I want to press you guys this morning and say that when it comes down to it in the heart of hearts that you have, in the backdrop of your mind, we don't actually believe this attribute of God that we're going to look at this morning. And you can't tell by the way you look at your external actions, but I'm going to submit as we look at Psalm 50 that you can tell by based on what's going on internally at times. Psalm 50, we're going to see God show up to the nation of Israel and he's going to speak to them in light of the fact that they do not believe a certain attribute of the character of God. And I think it's just not the nation of Israel, it's also you and I who really struggle to believe this attribute. I'm not going to give it to you in the front this morning, I'm going to give it to you at the very end of our talk this morning because I want you guys to see how Israel struggled. And the basis of Israel's struggle, if we share those same struggles, then we may also be struggling with this very attribute of God. If I give it to you at the front, you'll go, yeah, yeah, I believe that. I want to submit to you, though, really in the heart of hearts, in the backdrop of your mind, I think you are just like myself and just like the nation of Israel. We struggle to believe this about God. And very much of the overemphasis on the love, the grace, and the identification of Jesus and God with us as man, I think has really obscured this attribute of the nature and the character of God. But that's where we're going to head this morning, Psalm 50. And really as we jump in, what we're going to see from the very outset is that you can fail to believe this attribute of God, but you can live perfectly righteously on the externals, all right? You may not believe this attribute of God, and I will submit to you that all the externals, you can be doing all of the right things externally. The nation of Israel was, which is why when God shows up to declare and to speak the, to them in Psalm 50, they're going to be caught off guard. They're going to be surprised. Ultimately, here's where we're going to go. Beginning in verse 5, notice that God will gather the nation of Israel together. He says in verse 5, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And so he gathers the nation of Israel They've been doing their normal deal and he kind of interrupts the normal routine and he gathers them together. Anytime anyone with authority or influence over you stops your normal routine to gather you for a purpose, it's usually never good, right? The time that your girlfriend or boyfriend says, hey, let's talk, never good, right? The time that the coach stops a practice uh, or routine and a drill and practice together, the team together, it's not because he's going to cheer you guys, pat you on the back and say, great job. It's because he's about to rail into you, Right? God is going to stop Israel's normal routine. He's going to draw them together because he's going to come and judge them. Notice verse 6. And the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Ultimately, God is going to show up. He's going to gather them. He's going to come and speak to them in judgment. But as he does it, I think God buys into the whole technique known as encouragement sandwich, right? If you ever have anything negative to say to someone, start off with something positive, right? Okay, well, God does that, all right? Verse 9, all right? It's a biblical thing. Uh, Or actually, verse 8. God says to them, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. (laughs) So God gathers the nation together. He says, I'm going to bring judgment and righteousness to declare to you. And the first thing that he does is he highlights their own personal circumstances. He basically says, good job, guys. You're bringing sacrifices to me. All of the externals are in place. You're doing a great job. What's fascinating here is I think therefore Israel would have been so caught off guard. They weren't worshiping idols. 
They weren't off in horrible immorality. They were doing all the right things. All of the externals of the spiritual life were in order. Which is why this attribute of God is so tricky and so elusive to us. You can fail to believe it. And you can be doing all of the right things externally. All right? And so God comes and he speaks to them. And what you're going to find as we kind of walk through this is that they're going to be absolutely caught off guard. And what he'll do after verse uh, 8 is he's going to cut from the externals to the internals. The nation of Israel was going to be caught off guard because they had all of the externals were in place. And so God comes in the aftermath of that first moment. And he's going to turn the corner and really come, come at them in terms of their internals. And what God is going to do for the nation of Israel, and I think for you and I, is he's going to highlight two internal symptoms that exist for those who fail to believe this attribute of God. And these two internal symptoms are elements highlighting a disease that is being waged in terms of how we view God, and it's deadly. You may not see it by the externals, but you will see it by the internals. And so notice where God goes. Ultimately, the first internal we're going to see is that the nation of Israel struggled from a possession confusion. They owned a bunch of stuff, and they really thought it was theirs. They got really confused as to who owned this stuff and who had a right to control it and manage it. And so God is going to come in on that and press against it. Some of you guys might have been following this past spring, the story between Kobe Bryant and his mom, all right? Uh, basically, uh, Kobe Bryant's mom had gone to an auction house, all right? And she was going to sell off by auction a lot of his old high school paraphernalia memorabilia, all right? Jerseys, tennis shoes, awards. And so much so that she was going to make $1.6 million off of all of his stuff. Apparently, they had not really had a conversation about it, which is why he would then go to the courts and sue her, all right? You should never sue your mom. Doesn't look good, all right? Uh, but here's the deal. Why? What happened, all right? Ultimately, I think his mom had been housing and caring and managing this stuff for so long that she just assumed she could do whatever she wanted with it. So she goes to move to pawn it off and to make some good coin off of it, and all of a sudden, there's a problem, right? I'm not saying that Kobe Bryant is God in any way, shape, or form, right? <laughs> But ultimately, I think the same kind of possession confusion between Kobe and his mom was going on between God and the nation of Israel as well. The nation of Israel had gotten so used to managing their possessions for so long that they thought they could do whatever they wanted with it. And they got confused as to exactly whose it was and who had claimed to it. So notice where God steps in as he goes, jumps into this with them. Notice what he says in verse eight, you're gonna get, or verse 9. You're going to get a very sarcastic defense from God. He says in verse 9, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. What's going on in verse 9? He says, I'm not going to take your goats. I'm not going to take anything from your house or your folds. And he uses uh, the pronoun your two times. I think what he's highlighting for the nation of Israel is he's saying that ultimately when they come to sacrifice before him, they are beginning to see that God is committing robbery. That as they come and offer their stuff back to God in worship or in sacrifice, there is this latent idea in the back of their hearts and their minds that ultimately God is robbing them of their stuff. And so he says, hey, I'm not taking your stuff. I'm not coming into your house. I'm not coming into your folds. I'm not taking your stuff. And it's not just he's going to kind of slap them across the face sarcastically. Then he's going to provide a really extensive declaration. Notice what he says. That really would have put them in their place. Verse 10. Why is he not taking their stuff? Verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Is God on a power surge here? Is he just really, really bent out of shape? What's the deal here? What is God doing for the nation of Israel? I think he's trying to provide them some perspective as to whose stuff is whose, right? They may be managing, they may be providing some level of control and enjoyment from the things they have, but what God is highlighting for them is they would have nothing apart from what God has given them. 
Tozier will say it like this really powerfully. He says, an elementary but correct way to think of God is as the one who contains all, who gives all that is given, but who himself can receive nothing that he has not first given. All good things come from the Father above, right? He's the giver of all good gifts. God is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the giver of all things. And so when the nation of Israel comes in the midst of their worship and their sacrifice, grumbling that God is robbing them, God says, whoa, let's back that train up a little bit. I've created all things. The only things that you have is because I have given them to you in my grace and my goodness. And so I am not robbing you of anything. I've created all things. And ultimately what I think God is trying to do for the nation of Israel is highlight for them exactly how they are to actually view their stuff. The first internal symptom that's going on for the nation of Israel, a nation that fails to believe this character of God that we're going to see a little bit later, is that they're confused as to whose stuff is whose. My first challenge I want to give to you guys this morning is I want to challenge you to consider that you would treat your stuff as if it's on loan from God. Think about your time. Think about your money. All right. You guys are all students who, by and large, frankly, kind of think you're poor, right? Uh, if there's anything you, that you do have, it's maybe under mom and dad's title, right? But whether it, anything is on loan from your parents or whether you're making a few dollars at a job, right, that goes really quickly, whether you have much or whether you have little, who's ultimately is in charge of it? Who's ultimately in possession? If there's a title deed on your time, your stuff, is it mom and dad? Is it you? Or who is it? By and large, whether we have little or we have much, we operate as if it's ours, right? Uh, We operate as if it is ours. And so we have the prerogative, we have the right to do whatever we want with our stuff. How do you know that? When it's taken from you, when it's asked of you, when God comes and challenges you to give something, that internal uh, flesh that rises up and goes, no, that protects, that hoards, that grabs, that is unwilling to give and extend, it's because you and I have a possession confusion, (laughs) We think that our stuff, our time is ours to manage however we want to. God comes to the nation of Israel and says, you're confused. (laughs) I've created all things. The only things that you have, the only things that you have to manage are because I've allowed you to be a steward or a manager and caretaker of those things. They are on loan from me. So even in your worship, even in your sacrifice, it is not robbery from the divine at all. That's not at all what giving is. That's not all what sacrifice is. That's not at all what walking with God looks like. The nation of Israel was really confused. First internal symptom they had going on was that they were confused in terms of their own possession. The second thing that really stems from this is also they were confused about pity. Ultimately, as they approached God, they believed that their worship and their sacrifice was a charity that God desperately needed. That apart from the charity that they could offer, apart from their sacrifices, God would be checked. He would be in a panic. He would be needy. And God comes and says, no, that's not at all the way that I operate. You need to change your view of me. You need to change your view of our relationship. This is not at all the reality of who I am. Notice what happens here. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys one simple question. Does God need man? Notice what the text says in verse 12. God says to the nation of Israel, after he says, hey, I own everything. Then he comes to them in verse 12 and he says, if I were hungry, would I not tell you? Or he says, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all it contains. Ultimately, they were confused as to who needed help. Let me give you guys another example of this. Imagine if you were in downtown Dallas or downtown Bryan and you ran across someone who seemed like they were homeless, poor, uh, and, and potentially really in need of help. Imagine you pulling out your wallet, providing 10 bucks, or walking them to some restaurant to pay for their dinner to only realize later on they were a celebrity who was absolutely rich, right? How embarrassing would that be? 
Uh, Macaulay Culkin has been confused as a homeless person in downtown cities before, all right? But imagine Macaulay Culkin, any kind of celebrity, all right? Or imagine if you were the wife and child of Bill Gates. What do you get Bill Gates for Christmas or his birthday, right? What do you get for the person who has everything, right? Of course, Bill Gates probably couldn't buy himself a Mac laptop, so maybe you get him a Mac, right? But what do you get Bill Gates, right? What do you get for the person who has everything, right? It's incredibly difficult tension if you've ever been in that spot. Maybe you're trying to buy Christmas presents for your parents. You're poor, they're not. You're wondering how in the world I provide anything of substance or significance that's not just pitiful, right? You've been in that spot before. And so what God is saying to the nation of Israel is why are they approaching him in such a different kind of way? He says, if I were hungry, which is a hypothetical that could not exist, God does not hunger, he does not thirst. But let's just say for the moment that he were. He says to the nation of Israel, I would not even tell you. Why? Uh, He says at the end of that, he says, uh, for everything that moves in the field is mine. He goes back to this idea that he owns everything, right? That if he had a need, he wouldn't tell us because he wouldn't need us to fix it, all right? He goes one step further to kind of go this idea, why does he even need sacrifice at all? He says in verse 13, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Incredibly interesting scenario here, right? So they're offering blood of bulls, they're offering goats, they're offering animal sacrifice, and God is saying, why? Why would I ask you to do this? Do these things actually do anything for me whatsoever? Am I consuming them? Am I enjoying them? What's the, what's the purpose of this, right? They've become so confused as to who owns their stuff that as they begin to give it, they begin to think that, that God is in need of charity and in need of pity, and God says, you are grossly confused. <laughs> That's not how this relationship functions. That's not how I exist. That's not what I need. That's not why I've even called you to sacrifice. Uh, Tozer makes a fascinating statement speaking of 20th century Christianity when he says this, 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. How many charges have you heard from a church talking about needing money? How many times have you heard us or a church talk about uh, the need for missionaries uh, all across the world? Isn't there this sense that God is desperately in need and if you don't respond, he's going to be stuck or he's going to be in a panic or he won't know what to do next, right? There's a sense that we have that God is on the sidelines just frantically worried about what's going to happen. And we begin to have this real sense that we are desperately enabling God to fulfill what he wants and apart from us, he would be stuck and in a panic. And we've so elevated our sense of who we are and what we can do for God that we've really begun to confuse exactly who he is. Ultimately, I think the thing that God is trying to highlight for the nation of Israel is that he is self-sufficient. This is the character quality I want you guys to see this morning. That ultimately God is self-sufficient and he is independent. Does God need man? No. God does not need man whatsoever. All right? And yet I think you and I operate as if God is in desperate need of our obedience and desperate need of our following through on his call. Because if we don't, what is he going to do? We have God just in a sense on sidelines, wringing his hands, worried and anxious about what could happen. If we don't obey, if we don't come through. I think we've really missed who we are. And we've also really missed who God is. Paul was say it like this, speaking to the Athenians in Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Fascinating statement Paul makes in Acts 17 as he's speaking to the Athenians, saying, Look, in the midst of your worship, in the midst of your religion, 
You have an idea of pagan gods who are in desperate need of man to do things on their behalf for their welfare. And Paul comes in and says, you worship a God that you do not know. Let me tell you that this God is one who's not worshiped by the temples you build. He's not housed in the temples you build, that he's not served by your hands as if he needed anything. That's not how this God operates. That's not how this God exists, all right? And I want to submit to you guys this morning that by and large, if I asked you guys that, hey, do you think God needs man? We'd probably go, eh, no. But that's not how we actually think and live, right? (laughs) We respond and we do all the right externals because we really think God needs us. It's a really fascinating and really challenging sense of the character of who God is, that he is self-sufficient, that he's independent, that he is not dependent on you and I. In fact, it's a great contrast from paganism at large that was being celebrated in Acts 17 as Paul spoke to the Athenians. J.I. Packer, speaking of paganism, says this, Ancient paganism thought of each god as bound to his worshipers by bonds of self-interest because the gods depended on humanity's service and gifts for their welfare. Modern paganism has at the back of its mind a feeling that God is somehow obliged to help us. It's not just ancient paganism. That's contemporary Christianity at times. (laughs) Let me ask you, how many times have you come before God and thought, hey, I read my Bible this morning. Hey, I shared my faith this past summer on a mission trip. Hey, I've been faithful to you in terms of purity. Surely, right, you're going to come through for me on this test. (laughs) Or surely, hey, maybe you've noticed I'm really kind of interested in this girl. Surely you're going to help this thing get worked out, right? (laughs) What are the bargains that you make with God? What are the negotiations that you do in the quietness of your heart, thinking as if you have somehow provided something for him and therefore he is dependent and necessary to do something for you? That's paganism. That's not Christianity. And that's a God who's dependent on man, not a God who's independent on man. How about you? I don't know about me. I don't know about you guys, but I know for me, I'm a modern day pagan. (laughs) I do it all the time. Psalm 50 this week just jacked with me, all right? came right into the internal disposition of my heart and my mind and said, hey, you are off. (laughs) This is not how I deal with man. This is not how I relate to man. God came and said, no, we we need to do some business here. (laughs) I'm self-sufficient. I do not need you. I do not stoop down because I am in need of humanity to do something for me. Our obedience to God, our faithfulness to God never changes his pleasure with us. It never changes the basis of our relationship with him. And it never changes his disposition. Just last week, we looked at the fact that God is unchanging. He is unchanging no matter the circumstances of life, no matter even your obedience. His character, his nature, and his promises do not change. It's a huge concept for you and I. That God doesn't need us. That doesn't make for a great motivational charge in a church setting, Right? That doesn't make for a great motivational charge for why you and I need to follow through on what he's commanded us to, right? Again, you can fail to believe that God is self-sufficient and independent and you can do all the right things externally, right? You can think that God needs you, which is why you're obeying so faithfully, so vigilantly, so passionately. In whatever arena that you feel God is calling you to something. But here's the deal internally something begins to fracture as to how we view God, how we view ourselves, that is absolutely deadly. When you believe that God is dependent on you, you elevate your sense of worth in such a way that God is therefore now dependent on you. That God is wringing his hands, wanting, waiting and, and anxiously worried about what's going to happen if you don't come through on your obedience and on your faithfulness. That's an incorrect view of God that is deadly 
And yet it's so subtle. It's so subtle. Because there is a legitimate sense, there's a balance, sense of balance is that a little bit that we'll talk about all the time, that God in his sovereignty and in his kindness has involved man as he brings about and establishes a kingdom on earth. And he does it through human representation. His church is a part of how God is working in human history. But as we begin to deal with him individually, we begin to think that God could not accomplish what he wants apart from us. And that is an incorrect understanding of who God is and how he's relating to you and I. So let me kind of double back and kind of back out a little bit and go, so what do we do with this this morning? What does this mean? How do we apply this? Well, first let me say again, I think you need to treat your stuff as if it's on loan. The first internal symptom of this incorrect belief as to the nature of God was that the nation of Israel was beginning to think that their stuff was their own. (laughs) The first internal symptom that could exist for you is that you may have an incorrect view of your life and your stuff. Careful. If you think you own it, you think you control it, you may also be moving down a road that, that you would begin to believe that God is not independent. As you hold your stuff, as you think you own it, you may begin to think that God is needing of it. And then maybe sacrifice becomes robbery. Maybe you are then also then extending him charity and pity because what would he do without your stuff? What would he do without your life? Careful, right? Uh, second thing, uh, notice what happens in verse 14. Notice what God says to them. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Notice that God comes back to the externals that they were doing right and he doesn't say stop. <laughs> he says continue. Continue to offer sacrifice. Continue to obey. Continue to do all the right externals, but do them now for the right reasons, all right? He doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He says continue with the externals, but do them for the right reasons. He says out of thanksgiving. Ultimately, I I want you guys to think the fact that if God is the creator of all things, he's the sustainer of all things, he's the giver of all things, as Tozer said, anything that you respond back to him as a gift in worship or sacrifice is merely an element of thanksgiving. Saying, hey, God, you've given me all that I have, my intellect, my wisdom, my body, my smarts, my money, my time, anything that I can offer back is simply a sign of thanksgiving for what you have initially provided. I'm not robbing you at all. Or he's not robbing us at all. We're simply extending back to him what he first gave us. And it really changes the whole paradigm on giving. It really changes the whole paradigm on sacrifice. Not out of guilt. It's not that God is wringing his hands worried about what will happen if you don't give. Or if you don't provide some kind of sacrifice. It changes the whole paradigm as to how you approach that. That what giving is, is simply an opportunity to express to God thankfulness and gratitude for what he's extended to you. Whether it's much or whether it's little. It's not just money, it's time itself. God has extended to you days and months and years for however long. And so for you, as you serve, as you sacrifice your time in whatever place he's called you to, you're simply extending back to him what he's initially extended and offered to you, time. Even life itself. Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17 that he's given life and breath to all peoples. And so as you extend your life and honor him with your life, you're only extending to him what he first gave to you. Your life, your time, your possessions are all but stewards and on loan from him, which changes, therefore, the motivation and the paradigm as we offer it back to him. Continue to sacrifice, continue to give, but do it from thanks, not from charity. As if he needed you and was broke apart from you, right? Totally changes the paradigm. It changes the way we approach it. We honestly don't talk much about giving uh, within our college services to you students because sometimes the assumption, frankly, the myth is that you're poor, all right? And one of the things I want to do even this morning is talk a little bit about this giving concept because I think it's so crucial for you, whether you have much or whether you have little. Because the day will come that you will eventually will graduate and you will have more. (laughs) Maybe not much, but more than you have now, right? And the question will be, 
How do you respond to God in terms of your stuff then? I'm going to tell you that you are establishing patterns now how you view your money and your stuff and how you treat and handle and manage your money and your stuff. How you handle it and view it with little will determine and will be setting up a pattern and a habit for how you will handle it and view it when you have much. And so whether you are poor now or hanging on doing decently, the question is how do you view your stuff? How are you handling your stuff? When friends ask to borrow, do you extend and give it back? When you even show up in a church setting, you have an opportunity and a challenge to give financially toward the kingdom of God and toward what God is doing. How do you respond to that? We have all kinds of people who are raising funds right now to go overseas and to serve the Lord overseas. The question is, will you participate in that financially? Will you participate even in the life of the church financially? Will you give of your resources to what God is doing? I'll give you guys one opportunity to do that. I'm not going to labor this real quick, but just for, say for you guys, as a college students, we've been trying to find ways for you guys to have an opportunity to give that's more convenient and more casual for you guys. And one of the ways you can do that, if you guys want to just write this down or you can take note of it, all you have to do is text the number 99000, text that number with the message, Give to College. You'll get a link back that goes to our giving page that will give you guys a really easy opportunity to give and start to p- build a pattern of giving of your resources. We don't talk about it much. And in in doing that, we've really done you guys a disservice because giving and sacrifice is a part of our worship. It's a part of our walk with God. And I think it's appropriate in Psalm 50 to really have the backdrop to say, hey, God does not need it. God is not wringing his hands worried of what's going to happen. But he's giving you an opportunity to extend back to him what he's first extended to you. And that's all what giving is. It's a sign of thankfulness. It's a sign of gratitude to say to the Lord, hey, thank you for what you've done on my behalf. Thank you for what you've allowed me to be a manager of and a steward of that you've put on loan before me. And now may I extend it back and may I open my hand so that you can use it for your purposes and for your glory and whatever it is you may want to do. It's not just money, it's time, it's your life, it's your gifts, it's your intellect, it's your your abilities. It's not just a money thing. It's what are the talents and the treasures God has given you and how can you maximize those and involve those in what he's called you to. All right, last thing I'd say is Uh, that I think this understanding that God is independent and that he's self-sufficient actually allows us to cherish his grace all the more. I think it's really easy for us to begin to think that if God is independent, if if he does not need us, then maybe you and I begin to push back against that to say, no, that makes God seem really cold. That makes us seem really irrelevant to God. That makes uh, our whole basis of our relationship completely change from whatever it is I first anticipated or thought. I want to push back against that and say, I actually think when you understand that God is independent and self-sufficient, it actually allows you to understand his grace and his love all the more beautifully and all the more powerfully. Uh, Tozier has said, God has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. Why does God love us? Why did God love humanity? Why did God create anything at all? Was it because he was broken and in need of something? No. God was in need of nothing. God was not broken in any way, shape, or form. God was not incomplete. In God's beautiful glory, in his completeness, in his fullness, he acted and chose in love and in grace to create. Not because the creation itself would provide any need that was missing in him, but because he just chose to. When you grasp that God is independent and is not needing anything from you and I whatsoever, 
It totally changes the way that we view his pursuit and his step toward us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus would take on human flesh, that he would come live amongst us so that he could identify with us and stand in our place as a punishment for our sin. And that he would do that not because he was broken and that God needed something from a redeemed humanity, but he would do that simply because he loved us. That he cared so much for us that he would want to redeem us so that we could have a relationship with him. Not because he was lonely. Not because he was broken or incomplete or missing something. God chose to love us, chose to die for us, chose to create us out of the fullness of his glory and his majesty to show and allow us to enjoy it. It's not that we can do anything for him other than be a showcase for his glory and his majesty. When you grasp that, when you get that, it totally changes the whole dynamics of a relationship with God. Completely changes the way that you view his pursuit of you. That he would love you not because of what you could do for him, but he would love you because he wanted to show his grace and his kindness to you. It was simply an overflow of his fullness so that you could enjoy him and have a relationship with him. Grace is unmerited favor. What God has done for you and I is something we can never earn and something we can never pay back. The fact that the second person of the Trinity, the fact that Jesus Christ would come and take human flesh and die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins so that we would not die, but that we would have a relationship with God for all of eternity. It was all about grace. That God would give to something you, to you and I that we can never earn in this lifetime and never even pay back. Once you come to Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with him, obedience is not trying to just pay him back for what he's done. You'll never come close. Never. Nor will you ever come close to meriting his approval because you are sinful and you are broken and you are in need of a savior And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the fact that God is self-sufficient and independent is that he's moved towards us by his good pleasure because he wanted to. Not because of anything you could do for him as if he needed you, but because he wanted to show off his love to you and allow you to have an opportunity to experience it, experience him, have a relationship with him, and then begin to see him even transform your life and change it so that you would find what life is and life as it is abundantly. That's the beauty of the gospel. Grasping that God's, God is self-sufficient and independent does not make him cold and distant and does not make man irrelevant at all. I think it actually makes the grace and the love of God seem all the more stunning when you realize he doesn't need anything from us whatsoever. How do you continue to approach God? You come with a debtor's ethic. That God has done so much for you, you need to pay it back as if you'll ever get out of that debt. God says, no, no, continue to sacrifice with thanksgiving as a reflection of say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Which really, even as we wrap up this morning, as we end in worship, that's what worship is all about. It's all about an acknowledgement and an expression of thanksgiving for what he's done for us. It's all about an expression of acknowledgement and thanksgiving for not just what he's done, but ultimately even who he is. That he is glorious, that he's majestic, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's holy, that he's just. And he's all of those things perfectly. All of these things that we can sometimes grasp, but all of these things too that are so profoundly different than who we are. We are utterly dependent creatures from the womb. We don't live apart from the kindness and the goodness that's been offered to us from God himself and from those who birthed us, right? From the very outset of our lives, we are wholly dependent. God is holy 
independent. Why don't we worship and respond to that? Father, we thank you for your grace, that you would give us what we could not earn, that you would give us what we could not merit. Father, we give you thanks for that. That which we could never merit, but that which we could also never repay, no matter how long we lived and no matter how much we've done. That you would give us what we could never earn, what we could never even fathom, Lord. Your love and your grace is but a scandal. And Father, I pray that you allow us to be so transformed, so enamored, so blown away by what you've done, that we would walk out differently. That we'd see all of our lives as but a gift from you. The entirety of our lives is that which you've extended, that which you've given as a free gift, as true charity, with no expectations. Lord, may you allow us to know you more deeply. May you allow us to see you as you are. Not as one that we can bargain with, not as one that we can negotiate with, not as one that we can have leverage over, but as one who's utterly self-sufficient and utterly independent. And in that, Lord, may allow us to see your grace all the more deeply and cherish it all the more beautifully, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you. May we live for you and may we walk out as changed people. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.